You're listening to episode 98 of Goodwill Hunters, brought to you by Goodwill Media. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Our guest today is Sophia Shaquille. This is the second in our two-part series on the Asia Foundation, so if you haven't listened to last week's episode with Sam Chittick, I suggest you do so now. Sophia is the Asia Foundation's country representative in Pakistan. She's an experienced policy economist with nearly 25 years of experience in the development sector, with a focus on human development, public sector policy and governance reform. She has held several positions with the World Bank, Asian Development Bank and international NGOs. In this episode, we discuss the development challenges facing Pakistan, including on governance, education and gender equality. In particular, we discuss the impact of Australia ending its bilateral aid program to Pakistan and in doing so, withdrawing vital funding for the education of girls. We discuss the impact of COVID-19 on Pakistan's development, including how the Asia Foundation will continue to partner with the private sector to achieve development outcomes. Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by Goodwill Media, a leading communications agency for the international development sector. Goodwill Media exists to advance the fight to end all forms of poverty globally. We create content that inspires, empowers and drives action for organisations that share our passion for a more just world. There are links in the show notes to our social media pages as well as to my personal Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Enjoy the episode. From 27 to 30 October, the development networks of Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific, ACFID, SID and Piango will be hosting the inaugural Oceania Connect Digital Regional Conference. Our region faces unprecedented challenges, including COVID-19 and a changing climate. With only 10 years to 2030, now is the time to shift the power, raise the ambition and meet the sustainable development goals. Oceania Connect will bring you international keynote speakers, six plenary panels and over 25 concurrent sessions to motivate, challenge and inspire. So no matter where you are, secure your ticket for this digital conference at oceaniaconnect.delegateconnect.co or find the links in the show notes below. Sophia, thanks for chatting with me. To begin with, can you talk about some of the development challenges that you face working in Pakistan? Well, I think one of the main challenges of social development in Pakistan is that, you know, to improving um, programs in education, health, and those that, you know, deliver services to basic people. But there is a lack of continuity. That lack of continuity at the government level has resulted in some of the reforms that are launched, um, they're not sustained, they go off track, um, or there's reversal, frequent reversal of policies. There's a there's no shortage of good legislation and good programs, but the key um, problem lies in implementation and delivery. And that's a result of weak um, subnational and local government and administrative services. Are there particular roadblocks in governance that you're trying to overcome? I think the biggest barriers um, and the challenges relating um, to governance um, lie in weak government institutions. And and by government, I really mean also administrative. And then also, um, it's not just an issue of capacity, weak capacity, but it's also... um, 
fund flows and um, the fiscal space provided to local administrations and local governments has been very weak. So in that kind of context, um, service delivery becomes challenged. And I think one of the biggest problems in governance is um, capacity and then finance, but then also uh, lack of transparency. Um, accountability. Based on what you've said there, it's evident that Pakistan still needs aid and Australia has recently ended our aid program to Pakistan. Have you seen or felt the impacts of that decision in your work? No, you know, um, the declining incoming aid to Pakistan has happened gradually over, I would say, a period of like, say, five to eight years um, with a lot of the development partners, especially the traditional development partners that bring in bilateral assistance, which is so critical for supporting um, programs um, that are that, that work with civil society or with those institutions that can help to strengthen um, delivery at the local level. Um, those have been in decline since about maybe let's say 2012. And some of that started as a result of the you know, um, hangover of the deteriorated security situation. And then Pakistan itself tightened a lot of its space for development, especially civil society, um, with increased regulations and um, you know, basically more control from a security angle um, and which resulted in a very, very tight operating space. So some of the um, traditional bilateral donors, including a lot of the Nordic countries, and then, and more recently, um, Australia, among others, have um, started to, you know, um, just their their contributions to the aid um, scene in Pakistan has declined. And, you know, this is really unfortunate because some of these bilateral um, donors are the ones that do, that have supported a lot of civil society efforts, not just international NGOs, but local NGOs. And with that um, gone, that's going to be quite a bit of a challenge. So effectively, Australia shouldn't have ended our bilateral aid program to Pakistan. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously that, 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 you know, that's going to be uh, a big, especially because, you know, we, in, in the, with the Asia Foundation, our experience with the Australians has, has been really good because it's combined sort of uh, and enabled us to combine issues such as governance with water security and others. And we've, um, you know, I think that's going to be a, a, a big uh, absence of having, um, you know, funding from that. But we are trying to leverage what we have done with Australian funding and work with national institutions of trying to get some of the um, other donors to to support these efforts, but I do think that um, with absence of adequate funding with institutions that provide um, that deliver programs at the local level with local partners, that's going to be a big missing um, link in Pakistan, and we're going to really feel the absence um, of some of the important bilateral funding because already what we've seen is that um, local governments are starved of finances. And so when you don't have alternative services of delivery that strengthen those institutions as well, um, it just becomes very, very challenging for the beneficiaries who are not going to see central services delivered to them. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that part of Australia's aid funding to Pakistan was funding education programs and especially education for girls. Yeah, the Australian government did have a large education 
um, program in Pakistan, as did many of the other bilaterals. Um, and over a period of time, that declined. Now, it's really unfortunate because in Pakistan, um, you know, despite um, despite lots of interventions and financial support from both multilaterals as well as bilaterals, um, education outcomes have not seen a drastic improvement. It is one of the only countries where a majority share of essential basic education services, so I'm talking like primary and middle school, are provided by the low-cost private sector. And that's where you're seeing some results, but public um, education is um, um, who did support it. A lot of it was focused on teacher development. A lot of it was focused on improving the institutional mechanisms that deliver, you know, quality education. But unfortunately, a lot of that also requires hand in hand, a lot of investment by government in the public infrastructure, which didn't keep up to pace with the demand side. Um, the number of children coming in in every cohort every year was just far out, you know, just out strip the kind of supply that was put in by the government. Why are women experiencing a disproportionate level of disadvantage in Pakistan? Well, women in Pakistan, I mean, it's it's a whole, you have to understand it and view it from a whole life cycle. I mean, women, um, when we were just briefly talking about education, um, women's participation rates at, in education, especially in basic education, are lowest uh, among the lowest in the world. Um, and, you know, and there's lots of disparities between urban, rural, and, and geographic. So, you know, women are disadvantaged um, right from the start, um, even when it comes to basic public health indicators, um, with, you know, the rates of uh, stunting among girl child is is you know is phenomenal and that's become a major public policy issue in Pakistan because there's been some recent studies done um, based on serv- uh, you know countrywide surveys showing how um, children and particularly you know the girl child is disadvantaged by the time she you know becomes five years of age and then how that impacts lifelong learning women's um, at you know, participation rate in the labor workforce is, is among, again, the lowest, and particularly for an economy the size of Pakistan's. And some of that has to do with being disadvantaged in terms of education, but a lot of it does have to do with social values and cultural norms that, you know, still prevent women from, you know, participating in economic activity outside of the household. And when you do see women that are working in the in you know outside of the house, um, you they're faced with a lot of challenges such as unsafe transportation, um, unsafe workplaces, which then prevents even those women that have entered the workforce. It's a big backlash, and you know they drop out. So there's a lot of challenges. A lot of it is you know as one would you know say, I mean, it's a mix of cultural um, heavy influences of religious values as well as um, um, social norms that still prohibit women from actively participating in in society and the economic space. So all of these challenges existed 
without COVID, how has COVID impacted them or worsened them? I think COVID has just, like any crises or, you know, pandemic or even other natural disaster would expose the cracks that exist within any system. And it's really unfortunate because um, it's not just anecdotal. We recently completed a rapid research um, of that focused on impacts of COVID-19 on vulnerable women workers in the economy. So we looked at sectors such as um, domestic workers, as well as, um, you know, those working in services such as salon, industry, low-cost private education and all. And, you know, while some of the findings were pretty obvious and expected in terms of the immediate economic impacts, I mean, we were able to get data on um, the increase in domestic violence, the increase in, um, in fact, the increase in restrictions on women being able to make decisions in the household because of the lockdown, the male members were also in the um, household. So yes, I mean, it's just um, exposed some of the, uh, the, the extreme vulnerabilities that women face. We've also unfortunately seen an increase in um, child uh, abuse in the household, which is, you know, it's, it's, which has been quite prevalent. And then we're seeing that through some of the other pro- um, projects that we've launched um, to support um, COVID-19 responses. Um, and, you know, this is something that we feel is an important priority going forward because it's not just, it won't end with just the pandemic. Um, there has to be long-term um, interventions that build awareness and capacity of communities and their resilience to deal with how do you protect um, uh, children and also uh, providing safe spaces for women. Yes, the disproportionate impacts of COVID-19 on women is something that I've seen get more traction globally, including in articles in Australia. But is it safe to say that in Pakistan, the gap that already existed between men and women will be widened as a result of COVID-19? I think it's safe to say that for sure. Um, It's also, you know, uh, I mean, we do also see some signs of hope. I mean, in the last couple of months, there have been several incidents of um, violence against women, you know, whether it it, and, and that made the press quite widely. Um, the one positive thing that we've seen is, well, some of these, I think the public realizes has nothing to do with COVID. It's just, this is the way things are. And we've seen a lot of responses. Traditionally, Pakistan has had a, you know, a, a kind of um, uh, movement, which has seen, uh, you know, a women's action forum started in the 1970s. So, you know, it was raising this and it was seen more as a feminist movement. Whereas now, um, at least because of um, crises such as COVID-19, in which there are more efforts to raise awareness in in the public, in the general public, about safe practices, et cetera, you're also seeing those same tools and mechanisms being used uh, as platforms to spread awareness about that, uh, you know, against um, protests against um, violence against women, for example. So you are seeing more and more people especially young people um, voicing um, their protest to that these things have to change. Uh, so there is an opportunity in this, but on the other hand, um, you know, there's always two sides to it. Social media is, 
been very, very powerful to help bring about some of these changes. But it's also been, unfortunately, a way that a lot of the hate um, and myths have been spread. So how have you at the Asia Foundation changed your programs in Pakistan in response to COVID-19? And how do you think those programs will continue to evolve? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because um, our some of our major programs in Pakistan, for example, did not really require a lot of readjustment when it came to working in the COVID situation. And one of the reasons is, is that these programs are actually designed to tackle the fundamental issues that, you know, that, that some of the vulnerable communities face. So, for example, we have a project that is strengthening capacity for alternative dispute resolution in Pakistan. And in that, we work with all the way from the senior levels of the judiciary to the legal community to actual beneficiaries, people who are impacted. And this is um, trying to tackle civil, civilian disputes that occur within people. Um, um, you know, and a lot of these relate to custody cases, they relate to um, uh, inheritance um, and, uh, you know, women's property rights. And all of these are actually clogging our judicial um, system with backlog of cases which go on for years and years and put families into further, you know, vulnerability and, and, and poverty. Our work has been always trying to tackle some of the um, the fundamental, you know, drivers of what puts people and families into poverty, and what are the institutional ways to help that. So during COVID, we we were able to use our existing um, platforms of program partners, whether it was um, local legal aid societies or the committees that we've set up to. Uh, raise awareness among uh, the the lawyer community, the, the, you know, at, at, and I'm talking at really like at the district level. We were able to use those institutions and those partners to to adjust some of our programming to target um, issues that were arising as a result of the lockdown and the pandemic. Um, similarly, we have another project which works with uh, preventing violence against religious minorities. And in that, we don't just work with um, civil society organizations. We actually work with local government and local administration officials, including um, police, uh, you know, local and district level police officials. And so we we were able to leverage our networks and partnerships and our and, and our um, relationships with these institutions to um, also engage them in delivering some of our COVID-19 rapid response projects. Thanks, Sophia. That's really insightful. Are there any take-home messages or overarching thoughts or ideas that you'd like our listeners to be aware of? Well, I think, you know, I mean, a country like Pakistan is marred with a lot of challenges. I mean, its social development indicators are, um, you know, still far from having met any of it you know, the international targets, the sustainable development goals or anything. What I think is the only way forward is, is to work with, you know, to, is to have approaches that link up senior level champions, whether they're politically elected officials or senior government officials with established um, and, you know, trusted 
um, large civil society or organizations or NGOs and link them up with private initiatives that are taking place because a lot of work in Pakistan is happening in the private sector, um, you know, without which I think our, um, you know, social and economic um, stability would have been just really thrown off track given where we are in terms of our achievements. So I think that, you know, we need to get more. And so that's what I, I'm trying to get at, you know, the Asia Foundation and my colleagues and in Pakistan to do is to bring together some of the very senior political figures and champions, identify champions among them, and get them to really start to re- appreciate, trust, and see the private sector as a partner in development. Because without that, we're not going to be able to, um, you know, transform the lives of so many because it's already people have voted with their feet and they're, you know, turning to public, uh, privately delivered health services or turning to privately delivered education services. I mean, I'm not even going to get into, you know, what the quality issues are around that. But, you know, even basic services such as water serv- water and sanitation in large cities, and, and, and not just large cities like Karachi, but most of Pakistan's urban centers are provided by private sector because the government's failing to deliver those essential services. So what do you do? You have to start to work with um, learning from how private sector delivers things more efficiently, how they're able to... Um, you know, have a development impact, although that they're driven by, um, you know, fee-based services. And I think um, that's where the challenge lies. And I'm trying to drive the Asia Foundation's efforts, especially in the in in a context where development finance, particularly um, bilateral donor assistance, is going to continue to see a declining trend. Um, we need to try to leverage other ways of of making sure that basic services are still delivered and those institutions can that need to deliver them, their capacity is built. And so I think we're trying to um, move forward with strengthening those links and partnerships between public, private and, and local community. It's interesting to hear you say that because your colleague Sam said something very similar last week and it's evident that engaging with the private sector is a big priority for the Asia Foundation. Well, I think also then there's a, you know, I I mean, I see that kind of emerging as a trend across Asia as well. And, um, you know, we've seen, and maybe, maybe the bilateral donors also, and multilaterals, need to also recognize that and start to create mechanisms to, you know, to engage the private sector more. Um, I know some efforts are going on with different owners, but I think that's where we need to try to figure out how do, how do you work together? Um, it's not always easy because the systems don't always align and, you know, but yeah, it's a, the private sector is, uh, has a lot to offer in terms of technology solutions, but also ways of doing business. We'll finish there. Thank you, Sophia, for your time. That was episode 98 of Goodwill Hunters brought to you by Goodwill Media. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn, and I'll see you next week.